Welcome to the Coach Steve Clark Show, where he will encourage, inspire, and equip coaches, players, and parents who will in turn motivate and help others to promote the great game of tennis, foster sportsmanship, and develop greater players and people. Thanks for joining us, and here's your host, Steve Clark. Hello, everyone. This is Steve Clark, and thanks so much for tuning in to the show. I'd like to thank Wayne Bryan for the intro and Mike and Bob Bryan for their uh, music from their band, and a special thanks to all they do for tennis through the Bryan Bros Foundation. Um, and if you're ready to be inspired, challenged, and want to share one of my shows with everyone you know, today's your day. I'll do a thousand push-ups if you can listen to this podcast in its entirety and not have it affect you or your appreciation for what you have, you're learning something new, or motivates you to greater things. Today, my guest, Jason Arnett, and I will be discussing wheelchair tennis, not only in the U.S., but around the world, and players, both young and old, and parents and coaches, will be changed. You will not be the same, not because of what Jason has done, per se, though that's impressive, but because of what the players and others in wheelchair tennis are doing and what Jason is sharing today. So before I bring Jason into the mix, though, let me share a b brief bio on, uh, on him. And uh, so, you know, since October uh, 2016, uh, Jason is the USDA national manager and head coach of Team USA for wheelchair tennis. Uh, prior stint for many, many years, he was the head uh, tennis professional for the city of Mission Viejo, California. And uh, he's, he is a 1994 graduate of the University of Washington. Among many accomplishments, Jason has joined the USTA High Performance Wheelchair Staff in 1998. He has coached the U.S. teams to nine world championships at the BMP Paribas World Team Cup and, uh, and 14 finals. He successfully coached the quad team to seven World Team Cup victories. In 2015, he led the junior team to their first World Team Cup championship in 15 years. Following up with another title in 2017, he was the assistant coach at the 2004, 8, uh, 12, and 16 Paralympic Games and served as an assistant coach for many other years in the Parapan American Games. Uh, and both during of these, uh, both uh, both of these games, starting in 2004, U.S. athletes have won 21 medals, ranging from gold to bronze. And, uh, and additionally, Jason has trained numerous former and current world number ones. In March of 2019, uh, Jason helped guide the senior leadership with the Division of uh, Player Development for the USTA to completely absorbing high-performance side of wheelchair tennis and its own department within the player development. That's the first time in history for that program. And among other numerous honors, he was awarded 2007 Wheelchair Tennis Champion of the Year by Tennis Industry Magazine. In 2008, he was honored as the ITF Wheelchair Coach of the Year. And uh, since I'm from Orange County, this is a unique meaning to me. He was chosen by the Orange County Register uh, in California as one of the top 100 most influential people. And uh, being from that area, that is no small task. But uh, Jason, uh, welcome to the show. And uh, you got a lot going on there, and I just really appreciate you coming on. So how are you doing there in sunny Florida? Well, Coach Clark, thank you for that introduction. It's, an, it's absolutely my pleasure to be on the show and reconnect with you after a very, very long time being a, a competitor against UC Irvine back in the day as a, as a Husky. And um, it really is a pleasure and honor to be on the show with you. But uh, the weather here is about to turn. We're at that point <laughs> where, you know, we've had such a beautiful winter. 
all the blue hairs come down from the East Coast and yeah. enjoy the weather. <laughs> and uh, now we're getting into thunderstorm uh, territory and heat and humidity. I mean, nothing like Central Florida. You know, it's not it's not Irvine or Mission Viejo anymore. It's not Southern <laughs> California. That's, that's over. Yeah, a little different, a little different. Yeah. Well, let's get into some questions here because there's a lot here and uh, really want to uh, enlighten uh, our listeners and learn myself. So tell us a little bit about your personal tennis journey, uh, Jason, as a junior and through college. Sure. So, I, you know, I was born in Chicago, and I remember uh, when we moved to Southern California, I was about seven years old, and I remember my dad was just uh, you know, a football player, an athlete, and uh, didn't want his boys, he had three boys, an older brother and a younger brother, and he didn't want us to play football or any of the, any of the, the contact sports, so we grew up playing baseball and tennis uh, in Irvine. And my older brother and I really uh, ended up being tennis players, my younger brother not so much. Uh, but my older brother played uh, very good junior tennis, ended up at the University of Virginia, and he really pushed me. Um, and I had no interest in going east after junior tennis. I really wanted to stay on the West Coast, and that's really how I ended up at Washington. I didn't want to stay local, even though I was one of the heavy, heavy recruits for Coach Patton and yourself at the time coming out of the power <laughs> modern, mod, <laughs> out of modern day high school uh, uh, in, in Santa Ana, California. So, you know, I really, you know, I know Coach Patton had talked to me a little bit, but I definitely was not, you know, a highly ranked national player. I think I was a very nice sectional player with maybe a little bit of upside, but I knew Washington was going to be a good fit for me. Yeah. So I stayed on the West Coast, and um, I just had such a great college experience. And I really, I think most of us who play college sports in any kind, really look back at those formative years and saying what an important time, but man, what a short time. You know, we talk about it like, uh, mm-hmm. like you know, we're college sports for 20 years. It's like, unless you stay on like you did uh, and stay in that world, uh, once you're out of it, uh, it's really a small window in life. So, uh, but after I finished school and graduated in 94, I moved back to Orange County uh, and my very first coaching job was with the Vic Braden Tennis College uh, back in 95 through 96. And I remember um, I was reintroduced. If I go back further, a lot of people ask me how I got involved uh, in wheelchair tennis. And it's interesting enough, I was a member. My family had a membership at the Racquet Club of Irvine uh, back in the mid-'80s um, we, you know, we, we grew up training and playing. And that was the home base uh, at that time uh, for the Wheelchair U.S. Open uh, and for World Team Cup, which is essentially World Wheelchair Tennis's Fed Cup and Davis Cup. And so as a kid growing up, you know, maybe 12, 13, 14, 15, 16 teenage years, uh, we would see two or 300 people in wheelchairs come to the club one week of the year for the U.S. Open. And, and that's when I first heard about Brad Parks and Randy Snow, the two legends of the sport, uh, Nancy Olson, Rick Draney, some of the, the first real champions of the sport. Uh, and, you know, of course, I move on, play my junior tennis, college tennis, and come back. And I'm reintroduced through Vic Braden, and Vic had asked me to help set up the ball machine for a couple local wheelchair athletes, you know, at his uh, college out in uh, Cota de Casa, California. And I remember telling him the story on how I'd seen it as a kid, and I was uh, always amazed to see these folks at different levels playing, and, and it would just be my honor to help these two local guys get uh, set back up. And of course, whenever Vic tells you to do something, you do it, you know, <laughs> Vic, yes, sir, because uh, Vic, you know, Vic was the legend. Uh, but I was reintroduced, and that was 1996. Uh, and then a fellow uh, teaching pro in the area by the name of Butch Young, who was a well-known voluntary coach and had worked at Vic Braden's college uh, for, for a few years, 
uh, we did an exhibition together and he asked me to uh, move over to Mission Viejo and help him with some of his able-bodied, um, you know, collegiate players and top juniors and actually a couple young pros at that time because I was still playing competitively and still could hit the ball and uh, he needed some help. And uh, one of the first things Butch asked me was, you know, what do you think about starting a wheelchair clinic on Thursday nights? Let's make some time for that. And I told him, I said, I, interesting enough, I saw that growing up and I helped a few guys out at uh, Vic's place. And, and so we started a clinic uh, back in 96 and we ran that clinic Gosh, rain or shine for 14 straight years. And we had about 15 or 16 people. Uh, and that really was a life-changing moment for me. I knew at that point back in 96 that wheelchair tennis was going to stay in my life uh, if I was going to stay in tennis. Um, and then it just progressed in there. And USTA came on board in 1998 as the official national governing body. Uh, and they were looking for national coaches right out of the, right out of the gate. So I put my name in the hat. And I had uh, a lot of support from local players, and uh, I got a position as a national coach and have been a national coach ever since. Uh, and in 2016, I mean, there's a lot that happened in between, obviously. Yeah. Uh, but, two, but 2016 was, uh, you know, when the national manager and head coach at the time, Dan James, a good dear friend of mine, stepped down. Uh, it really was the opportunity for me to, you know, and I think all of us teaching pros have been doing this a long time. No, uh, you know, as in my almost into my mid forties at that point. And I knew, you know, the mileage on the body and the sun and all that was starting to take its toll. And this was going to give me an opportunity, not necessarily to go corporate, which, which unfortunately, or fortunately, this job really is heavy corporate. Um, but it gave me a chance to get off the court, be creative, try and, you know, really build this department, the high performance side specifically. Um, and like you said, uh, this past year, uh, we were welcomed with open arms into player development. Uh, and now I answer directly to Martin Blackman uh, and Dr. Paul Lovers. So it's, it's just been an amazing, you know, how could I ever have guessed that I would, you know, see wheelchair tennis as a 12-year-old in Irvine uh, and then someday end up as the head Paralympic coach? I just um, couldn't, have, couldn't have predicted that. Well, and, and this is, uh, you know, even in asking this question, and, you you know, you go through and some of the questions I was going to be asking, you touch on it because one of the things is almost every name you had in there are people that have been good friends or, you know, acquaintances of mine as well. And that's part of tennis. It's like you're in college, you have some of the best friendships of your life. Um, and then, you know, you, you stay in it and, you know, Vic Braden and Eric Quaid and Parks, all these people, yeah. it's just, it's like a fraternity or sorority. And it's, it's just, I know there's other things in other sports and everything, but tennis is just such a yeah. worldwide sport in that way that it's, uh, it's, it's really cool. So I, I think that's a good yeah. learning lesson for a lot of the uh, younger uh, people listening in. So yeah. um, not many people are exposed to uh, wheelchair tennis, obviously. I think that's one of the things we're going to learn. And certainly not, you weren't. And then, and, and that was the hotbed of wheelchair tennis is at RCI. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And and so certainly not at the upper levels or even the grassroots level. So I got a question in the intro. I made you know some comments. You know, like there's there's different types of disabilities in wheelchairs. Can you go over some of the uh, possibly the wheelchair you know athletes and some of the you know various disabilities they might have. You know whether there's uh, you know we've talked about this before and then and what those mean for them. For example, if somebody's you know, somebody's an amputee, they have leverage on a chair, they, they kind of get it a different yeah. way than somebody else. Because what I want people to understand is a lot of times able-bodied people don't really uh, understand, I mean, how fortunate they are or um, the things they can do and take for granted. Yeah. 
I, I, yeah, it's disability so interesting. And that's what I've learned that, you know, as an able-bodied coach, I'm, I think I've had a very interesting perspective in that I've been on the able-bodied side and the para side, right? The para sports side to where, you know, the able-bodied side, I'm not going to say you coach and treat everybody the same way. Everybody's an individual. However, when you're talking about the physicality of coaching, you know, there are some, some fundamental things that have to happen on the able-bodied side that may not I mean the fundamentals are the same on the parasport side, but how you get there mm-hmm. through adaptation uh, can be very radically different. And that is the great challenge, I think, of being a wheelchair tennis coach is that, you know, whether, like you said, we can have amputees, we can have cervical level, you know, spinal cord injuries. There's complete versus incomplete, which, which, which complicates the function levels. There's thoracic level, you know, the T6 through T12 disability, which, again, is a higher functioning spinal cord injury. The cervical level being low functioning, and that would be what we call the quad division. That's not necessarily quadriplegic. It is medically, but it's also, and we can get into classification, and right. that makes it very complicated. Right. Uh, but, again, when we talk about function, and like you alluded to there, you know, if you if you look at someone who, say, is a, a double amputee at the hips, a very, very high-level amputation, uh, yes, they don't have a spinal cord injury. However, their balance is going to be compromised because they don't have their thighs to really you know, fit into the chair and give them leverage on, say, the size of the chair. Or where a single amputee or amputations below the knee might have that advantage. right? If you, and until, I think the mistake a lot of people make is they see people come in uh, say you have three or four people come into your club in wheelchairs, your instinct says, well, I guess all four are dealing with a similar situation. Mm-hmm. And the reality is all four may have radically different situations. And then you throw in, say, someone who uses a power chair, and it's even more complicated, right? So it's just, you know, as coaches, we have to really put on our teaching hats and being creative and really trying to figure out what, what these athletes can and cannot do. But the disability especially at the elite levels of the sport, are driven. Uh, it drives the function levels, and the function levels are what drives the very, very best players. Because if you looked at pictures back in the 70s and early 80s, and you saw Brad Parks and Randy Snow, what you're seeing is a lot of people with spinal cord injuries. And function levels were you know, compromised in some, some capacity. Whereas by today's standards, if you look at the top 10 players, they can either all walk or at least weight bear which is high function, which right. means they can twist and turn and lean and, and leverage, uh, maybe even without having to grab the wheel of the chair, unlike, say, Brad and Randy did back uh, at the beginning stages of the sport. So the sport has evolved because of function. So from a, from a coaching perspective, disability is a, is a massive challenge because if you have a cervical injury, you may have a situation where someone has 30% hand function and they can't necessarily hold a racket and hit a ball without the racket flying out of their hand. So you as a coach have to show them potentially how to adapt and uh, use an assistive device like like athletic tape or uh, an ACE bandage to start with to try and figure out where we can grip the racket and still be able to push the chair. Um, these are complicated things that I think as coaches, we need to have the patience uh, and the compassion to be able to tell them, go, hey, you know, we're going to work with you. You're going to show us what you can and cannot do. And from there, uh, together, uh, and again, there's that important coach-player relationship there, uh, where together you can work through some things. And the interesting thing, Steve, in all this is for us as coaches in, in para-sport and wheelchair tennis, we tend to become the students. The, the, t- the teachers really are the athletes because 
you know, they have what we need. And that's information about their disability and information about what they're really capable of doing. Right. And then our and our job is to then figure out how do we push them? How do we how do we help them adapt and enjoy the sport? Uh, because on the surface, you're going, wow, I've got a, I've got a, a ton of challenges here that I've got to work through as a coach. Uh, and you ends up the athlete ends up helping you through all of it. Right. Which I think is a radical change because I think as able bodied coaches coaching able bodied players, I've said it before. I don't remember the last time I was truly mentored, at least in tennis, uh, from one of my players. It's like we always have more information. We're older. We're more experienced. We have everything that they want. And I think the role is really reversed in wheelchair tennis because we need to know more about each individual disability and and what they're contending with. So great challenges for us. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's really good. Uh, you mentioned, you know, P, uh, I remember in a brief talk we had before, you mentioned people coming out of a difficult f- physical situation that's now made them, uh, you know, either through an accident or surgery that they have to be, uh, they're disabled. Um, you mentioned that, you know, there were wor- wheelchair sports, you know, there was basketball and other things. Um, and then, but now tennis is kind of picking up. Uh, can you expand on that? You know, why the difference between, you know, even culturally or just, uh, as a lifelong sport, you know, tennis is now becoming uh, more and more popular. Right. I think, you know, the great challenge we've always had, and this, I say, if I go back since, gosh, I've been around long enough to know this now, but if you look <laughs> at the 80s, it's unbelievable. Like adaptive sports back in the early 80s and mid 80s, even up to the early 90s, just wasn't, wasn't that big of a thing yet, you know? And so tennis really was very popular. I remember going to tournaments, you know, when I first started coaching and you literally would have 200 people in wheelchairs there. And it's just, that's just a massive event. And, you know, the cool thing about wheelchair tennis is in in some capacities, at least here in the U S we have ITF professional money events, just like almost like a challenger level event coinciding with a, a USTA sanctioned letter division event. So you have say 80 or 90 folks who are ABC players you know, letter division players playing next to Paralympic level and Grand Slam competitors. And that is very unique. That doesn't happen on the able body side. Um, and so you get a chance to see, uh, you know, so many folks coming together. And it's just such an interesting dynamic. And you realize that these folks are going to be together for a very long time, enjoying the social aspect. And I think that's what why tennis did so very well uh, in the 80s and the 90s. But then come mid-90s, closer to, to the year 2000, you know, all of a sudden, honestly, mountain biking, you know, basketball has always been kind of popular. There's kayaking. There's mountain climbing, believe it or not. Uh, all these different adaptive sports started coming out, and they were cheaper. There wasn't as much travel involved. There wasn't coaching necessary. You maybe didn't need a specialized wheelchair like you do in tennis. So the cost, uh, you know, part of it came into play. And so what happened was our numbers start to drop because people decide, you know, I played tennis and now I'm going to go do other things because there are other things to do now. That maybe wasn't the case early, early on. And, you know, again, in the early parts of the sport. And so those are those are all challenges that we now have Uh, in wheelchair basketball. When we talk about junior tennis, I'm not going to say it's been the bane of our existence, but they've been amazing at recruiting young young people out of rehab hospitals mm-hmm. and getting them in a getting them in a basketball chair on day one and then putting them in a team environment where all of a sudden you know uh, i'm in a chair now for whatever reason whether it's congenital or like you said a surgery gone bad or a traumatic experience car accident something along those lines 
uh, and you come out of the rehab hospital and now you're thrown into a team environment with other people in chairs, with other people with a like experience. And that's, that's actually healthy uh, and it's comfortable. And then parents, if I've got a child who has a disability, now I'm around other parents you know, who, who are going through the same thing that we're going through. And so team sports like basketball have always been very, very successful. Where tennis has been difficult is you don't have that team environment. You're not around a lot of peers all the time like you are on a basketball team. Yeah. So, but what the parents end up seeing is an opportunity for their child to get into a sport that they know they can play for a very long time. And, and honestly, the magic of tennis and wheelchair tennis is its ability to integrate back into the able-bodied side. And I always say that Brad and Randy, and it's really Brad and the group before Randy Snow, the great, you know, the, the legend of U.S. tennis and Randy Snow, but Brad was the founder, Brad, Brad Parks, uh, that they had to look at how they were going to adapt the sport back into life. And they realized that changing just one rule, adding a second bounce, was going to be the easiest way to integrate back in with able-bodied people like their family members and friends so they can right. go out and play tennis together. Because if they had adapted the sport to where, okay, we're going to lower the net, we're going to shorten the rackets, we're going to change the ball, we're going to change the dimensions of the court, what they actually would have been doing is, is driving wheelchair tennis further away right. you know, from truly integrating. And so I think the adaptations that were made early were brilliant. Um, and, and tennis just ends up being like it is for us as able-bodied people, a sport you can play for a very, very long time. Um, yeah. And I think the draw for young people was is also the professionalization of tennis, wheelchair tennis. It's right. just we're in all four Grand Slams now, and there's a, a multimillion-dollar tour you know, sponsored by Uniqlo. Right. And I think that has also incentivized young, young athletes to get engaged in tennis earlier because basketball just doesn't have the money. Well, you know, you mentioned something here, and I want to kind of segue into a topic. And I, I, I'll use the word the salvific nature of wheelchair tennis for many. It's like uh, you sent me a link uh, regarding Dana Matheson. And, you know, it, this speaks to the, exactly what you're talking about where, you know, people aren't even aware of other people. You know, this, this is with a lot of handicaps. Some people aren't even aware that there's other people like them. And, right. and she found out, wow, not only are there people like me, but there are some stud athletes out there and competitive people, uh, intelligent people, you know, and it, there, it, this whole range. And it's like she was like uh, it was kind of an eye opener for. Her. And so I got a question here that um, I think people would like to uh, listen in on is, can you share a story or two that sheds light on the opportunities that this affords um, disabled athletes and even motivates even able-bodied people. I think you mentioned um, a world-class athlete in a weight room among professional tennis players. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I, player development, I can tell you, you know, which is current right now, um, what that's done as far as life-changing for our athletes. I think there's always been that sensation that, you know, maybe I'm not good enough, maybe I don't belong. Uh, and again, like you said, Dana grows up as a 10-year-old kid uh, and Dana is now in player development, living in Orlando, you know, and training with me. Um, you know, she looked back as a 10 year old and all of a sudden she goes from this cute kid playing soccer and all her friends to all of a sudden she's the only girl in a wheelchair in her neighborhood. The only good girl in a wheelchair, uh, who goes, you know, at her school. And, you know, that's traumatic for her. Mm -hmm. You know, she understood what it was like to run around and be a quote unquote normal kid. Uh, and that's taken away from her. Through a very rare autoimmune you know, disease called transverse myelitis. 
And so she you know, had to deal with that and her mother had to deal with that. So I always say, you know, what does sport, like you said, how does sport the salvation uh, for people? And I know I got away from player development. I'll come back to that. Oh, that's uh, yeah. We got, honestly, yeah. You got tons of those questions later. Yeah. No, that's all right. Oh, yeah. Because um, you, you, know, you had mentioned course. somebody that, uh, and, and, and yep. keep going, but I do want to have you, if yep. you can address this, the one world, I mean, she's like considered to be the world champion and just, and how she did her laundry. I mean, that's an amazing that's story. Yes. Yeah. I love that story. And I, th- and I, and again, for everybody listening, if you ever felt, it's never about feeling sorry for yourself, right. but it's feeling like I can't do something. When I share that, you're just going <laughs> to, your jaw, your jaw is going to hit the floor. Uh, but we, yeah, but getting back to Dana and I think yeah. Esther Vergeer, who we're talking about there, went through the same thing again, very young when she had her situation. And I'll describe that. But, but Dana, you know, had to get back into life and her mother found sport. Her mother just simply said, you're not going to do nothing. Her mother's a medical doctor. She understood the gravity of what had happened to her daughter and she knew it was going to be a lifetime event. This is how it's going to be. So we're just going to find another way. But her mother knew she had to be physical. She was an athlete even at 10, and you can't do nothing. So she found a wheelchair tennis camp in Coronado, California. Dana's from San Diego, and it just so happened to be a camp I was working at. So here comes young Dana Matthewson coming through the door and and not quite sure, and she looks around, and there's 25 kids in wheelchairs. So that's across the bridge in San Diego, huh? That's right. That's right. (laughs) Beautiful. Down by the Lowe's Resort, watching the Navy SEALs train as we're driving in. Uh, it was incredible. You know, we did, we did that every year for about 10 years. And that first year Dana came on board again, she happened to be there a year when we had, uh, half of our Paralympic women's team there. And that was a very powerful moment for her because I think the conception is there's nobody pretty in a wheelchair. There's nobody strong. There's nobody accomplished. There's nobody, nothing like that in, in the wheelchair world. And then she shows up and here are three beautiful women who are accomplished and athletes and, and really the best at what they do. And it, and it totally flipped her mindset, even at 10 or 11 years old. Mm. And it, her mother, her mother saw that and it, and it just, it gave her hope. Mm. You know, there's great hope for my child in looking at these women and how successful they were at that time. And that's where, you know, like you said, sport for someone who's had a traumatic moment, it just, it, it allows them to re-engage with their families and loved ones. And I can, I can never overemphasize the trauma ripples way beyond the individual. It's almost like a veteran who gets injured in war. Um, We deal with a lot of veterans here in Orlando. We have a military clinic we run. And you see that trauma in that situation is very similar to this, where when someone suffers trauma, you know, say as a child, uh, say it's a car accident, the kid's 10, 11 years old, what does it do to the parents? What does it do to the siblings? What does it do to the, the other family members? Mm-hmm. It almost al- it almost alters everyone's life path. Mm-hmm. It's like you, you have this preconception of what your life's going to be, and all of a sudden you're taking a hard right turn, and there's no going back. And so everybody has to adapt in the family situation. And so sport allows the family to re-engage differently. Um, and I think it did save Dana. She was a pretty angry kid. You know, when she got injured, she lost her legs. And that's, uh, it wasn't like she was two. Right. She's not going to remember it. She was 10. She knew very well what she'd lost. And that's incredibly difficult. And so what does that look like later in life? How does that make her, does that make her more coachable, less coachable? These are all things that we have to deal with as coaches. Right. That that trauma, that trauma stays for life. 
uh, and can make it very challenging for well, us. Well, and, so. I, and I do want us to get back to uh, the world-class athlete you were, uh, you were alluding to, but I, th- this, yeah. what you're saying here actually is the same thing with able-bodied athletes. For example, there are people that had you know a great junior career or they played through college and maybe they had an injury and then they stepped out of it for 10, 15 years. I mean, I've had, I've had students... Um, that I mean, I even have former players that were you know top five in the NCAA and uh, you know haven't played for a while, and then they get out there and they're they're like, oh my gosh, what was I doing the last fifteen years? Or it takes them a while to get back. And I've I've yeah. coached some people that had an injury, and then you kind of help them get around it until they get rehabbed, and then all of a sudden they're competing again, and it's just like a whole new you know kind of rebirth right. of what they were doing, and that happens even with able-bodied athletes. You know, it's, right. it's it's a you say it's something they miss, and some people you know just go away from it, and you know, and uh, you know, each person has their own pathway. But uh, um, I, I think it's been pretty cool to see people come back. So now let's mention yeah. um, uh, the story about uh, uh, how Esther. most of us would want to uh, you know w- wouldn't do this at all. We would uh, just go down yeah. to the laundromat and uh, flip in some quarters and read a book. Yeah, I I think you know. Look, I share this story. Uh, to show you an, an example of someone who's truly exceptional, right? And I can probably say that about most of our athletes. Uh, and, and, you know, our athletes always get tired of being called inspirational. And right. They don't want to hear it. I'm an athlete. I'm a person just like you. And they are. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I try and tell them, I go, look, you know, in, when someone says that you're inspirational, you have to look at the definition of inspirational. And we all understand the challenges of life. I mean, look what we're all going through right now. It doesn't stop you know, disease in the family, all the social problems that some families have, it's still going, even with COVID-19 going, all these challenges are real. Now throw uh, a physical disability that you have to deal with every day of your life on top of that, and how can you, and you're successful at it, how can you not say that's not inspiring? Mm-hmm. So I try and remind our athletes, I said, you have to, you're, you have to look through it a different filter, because we as able-bodied people maybe don't have the same filter someone in a chair does. Uh, and it goes the other way that someone in a chair maybe has lost that filter and forgotten, you know, what it was like to be able-bodied and looking at someone with a disability. So it goes both ways. So right. someone like Esther Vergeer, the, the young lady we're talking about here, uh, for those of you who are listening, you need to Google and look up and research Esther Vergeer, uh, say Dutch wheelchair tennis player. Uh, and this young lady is the greatest potentially the greatest athlete in any sport of all time. I mean, this young lady has the longest win streak in all of sport, whether it's disabled sport or not, able-bodied sport. She has a 400, I think 470 match win streak uh, before she retired. And she had one loss before that streak began. Uh, And it was a seven, six in the third at world team cup or Davis cup fed cup equivalent in 1999 in New York. And I was there for that loss. Uh, and she was a little bit under the weather, and she lost 7-6 in the third. But prior to that match, she had like between 150 and 200 match win streak up. So you're talking about a young lady who, you know, had a kind of a, a 50-50 win-loss record going into her first streak and then began an amazing streak, had a loss, and then went on the longest win streak in the history of all sport before she retired and had won four Paralympic gold medals, Sydney, Athens, Beijing, and then London. Right. And so you're talking the most successful Paralympic athlete potentially ever. Uh, so the story I share with you is it's a it's a little bit it's a personal story, I meaning because I know her very well. Um, she was living in an apartment in Amsterdam or just outside of Amsterdam. And this particular apartment uh, 
their laundry facility was on the fourth floor, um, and there was no elevator. Uh, and Esther had suffered, I think, I don't know the exact name of the condition, but she had many strokes in her spinal cord uh, as a child. Um, and she needed surgery to help repair some of the damage, and that caused partial paralysis. Um, but again, being a big, strong Dutch athlete, you know, she went also on to become a European Junior World Basketball Champion and so forth. Uh, but to get back, again, just defines her as she's a champion. And so she has this apartment. And once a week, what she would do is she would take a large military-sized duffel bag full of all of her laundry, and she'd roll over to the stairwell, and she would basically have all of her detergent, all of her laundry in this bag, and she'd pop out of her chair onto the ground, and then she would uh, put the bag in her teeth, and then she would slowly uh, put her legs out in front of her and then do basically dips you know, one staircase at a time, one step at a time, all the way up, you know, leading with her, her butt going up the stairs, uh, four flights of stairs until she got to the top of the stairs. She had a top loading washer up there. She would reach up, you know, open the top of the washer, dump all of her laundry in, put all her soap in, reach up and grab the dials and get it started. And she goes, okay, I've got about 45 minutes. She then bumps down four flights of stairs to her chair, jumps in her chair, Goes over to her car, jumps in her car, goes grocery shopping, runs some errands, comes back, puts all her groceries away, goes back over to the stairwell, jumps out of her chair, and bumps up four flights of stairs and moves her moves her laundry <laughs> over to the dryer, right? So she puts it in the dryer, and she goes, okay, well, I have an hour. Bumps back down four flights of stairs. Right? It sounds like it's getting crazy, but this is what she does. Right. Bumps down four flights of stairs, jumps in her car, goes gets her car washed, fills the tank with gas, comes back parks a car, jumps out of the chair, bumps up four flights of stairs, gets all her laundry out, folds all her laundry, puts it in a duffel bag, bumps down. I know it sounds, but that's who she is. That's what she is. And and I try and think about all the athletes I've worked with, and probably you have, Steve. And I go, who would do that? Who would do that? And she goes, why would I ask anybody to do that when I could do it myself? Why would I do that? Right. And I said, that's different. That is not you're normal. <laughs> if you want to call it normal. Right. I, right. I just don't have any athletes that would do that. They would always ask for help. Well, it's up on the fourth floor. I can't get up there. And she would say, well, what do you mean you can't get up there? Get out of your chair. You're an athlete and do it. So what it takes you two hours to do it, do it. And that is what made her different. Mm. She was truly a mental giant. I mean, she was physically, she was superior, but, but she was mentally so confident and we always talk about that with champions is that self-belief is so high. And she did. She wasn't an arrogance. She just carried herself on and off the court with such grace, but such strength. Uh, and at the end of her career, and, and I'll tell you, Steve, the one thing that she did better than anybody I've ever seen in Paralympic tennis is her transition out of the sport. She just, and we talk about that a lot with athletes. They just don't know when to get out. They just don't have the skill set or there, there's fear, there's all that anxiety of, well, what am I going to do once I'm done playing? And for Esther, she knew that three years before she retired, right after Beijing, that she knew London would be her last one. And so she started a foundation, the Esther Vergeer Foundation, and it was essentially to help you know children with disabilities back in the Netherlands. Uh, but since then, she's gone global, uh, and she has, you know, a handful 
literally a handful of sponsors. She is not one of those athletes that's, you know, like a NASCAR driver that has, you know, 20 sponsorships. And she's got four or five key sponsors that have been with her her whole career. And that is who she deals with. And so when you talk about being a sports person, and I know we always look to Fed and, and some of these guys as just being and, – and Fed's off the charts, you know, how that guy has managed his time, managed his sponsorships, family life. The guy's a master, and, and he's a good person. She's the same. And whenever you hear Nadal or Fed or anybody talk about Esther, they always go, we can't – they say, we can't relate to someone like that who's won so much because I always say what makes her incredible – is that she was never sick enough to default. Her chair never broke, which right. isn't that uncommon. Uh, you know, she never had an injury that kept her out long enough. You know, it was always yeah, she's I, just a workhorse. I tell people it's right. it, it'd be tough to win tiddlywinks that far that much. I mean, <laughs> I mean it, there's it, you know, yes. yeah, you just got to have a hiccup and a double fault. I mean, it's that's that's, it. that's tough, you know. That's tough. Yeah, so, you know, I mean, remarkable person. Yeah, so that's the type of cut of person you're dealing with. Right, when you're talking about disabled, you know, athletes with disabilities. Right. Well, There's let me hardness. Yeah, let me segue into that because one of the things is, and and this relates to able-bodied people. Sometimes we don't, you know, as as players go on, they go, you know what? Unless I can compete at a high level, I don't want to play, and I don't want to compete. And then now we have people that either a were able-bodied and now they got to play a sport that they can't uh, excel at like they used to, um, and and I'm going to give a little something I do with players that you know, touches on this because a lot of times, you know, to help somebody with their backhand, I, I have them hit left-handed. You know, if they have a two-hand backhand, mm-hmm. I have them hit left-handed and they have to be able to, and you know, a lot of people, they feel like a goofball when they're first starting. Yeah. But it's like a beginner again. Yeah. And then, and then and that's part of the point. And in fact, sometimes I have a lot of my players, teams, and just if, if I'm coaching privately, I'll, I'll play them left-handed and then, um, you know, both serves, everything, volleys, slice and everything. Cause I've spent a lot of time playing left-handed, but it's, it's, the whole idea, I want them to get better at it because here's a key point is it helps with our brain development. And, uh, you know, our, our brain, when we, you know, uh, I have one of my podcasts is with um, a well-known uh, neuropsychiatrist, uh, Jeffrey Schwartz, uh, out of UCLA. And we talk about self-directed neuroplasticity and how people with injuries, but he mainly dealt with OCD people, but um, people with injuries, how you can actually reprogram the brain. My point is this. It's not just for um, disabled people, but even able-bodied people, how we habituate and how we break habits and everything through this process, our brains literally get rewired. So it's amazing that when somebody was, uh, you know, an able-bodied athlete and then they have an injury, you know, and it is tough emotionally to have to drop your standard. You, you see a lot of this where people once were doing this, and I'm curious on a couple things if you could touch on this, is... You know, what What do they go through? And I want to encourage players out there that maybe have had this issue, whether they're in a wheelchair or not, where all of a sudden their standard of play drops significantly due to a uh, you know, physical uh, disability of some sort. Um, you know, maybe encourage them to say, hey, you know, uh, this is this is a pathway. This is something you can do. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because we've had athletes, you know, some of our quad athletes where there's an upper body impairment where let's say a motorcycle accident, the guy was right-handed, his right arm was wrecked, and now his left arm's perfect, but he's not left-handed. So he's got to be willing to come back, not only play tennis again, but play with a non-dominant hand, uh, and now do it in a wheelchair and be okay with that. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, for this population, 
you know, so, the social aspect is very, very important, being around your peer group. So, uh, you know, being willing to come back to athletics in general um, and, and maybe not be as good as you once were is something that I think most of them are willing to do because they understand the importance of re-engaging with society again. Um, and we've had some athletes, I know we talked about this before, where, uh, you know, they one in particular, uh, Stefan Houdet, a French player, who was a former world number one player in wheelchair tennis. He was a tier one junior uh, in his teens uh, in France, and he was primed to have a professional tennis career. He got in a motorcycle accident and lost his leg. Um, he got as far away from tennis as possible. He wanted nothing to do with tennis, and I think it's for the exact reason you said. He knew he was going to come back, and if he was going to play on a prosthetic leg, that he just wasn't going to be very good at. And so he went on became a veterinarian, uh, and he happened to see in his mid-30s. Now you're thinking from 19 to 35, it's 16 years out of tennis. Mm-hmm. And he ended up being a great uh, at, you know, golfer, a disabled golfer, one of the best in the world. But uh, another French player who was one of the top wheelchair tennis players in the world inspired him to come back and try it in a chair for the first time. He never used a chair, still to this day, does not use an everyday chair. He uses a prosthetic leg to get around, but he plays tennis in a chair. Mm-hmm. And interestingly enough, he came back, and his strokes were perfect. I mean, his stroke production, his foundation, his tennis foundation was there. And he realized if he could make his way, say, to the top five in the world, which we all knew was possible, that he was probably going to be able to make more money as a, as a wheelchair tennis player uh, than as a veterinarian. <laughs> and that's what he did. Yeah, That's what he did. He came back and he started training. And, and the thing was, he wasn't a very good pusher at first because he doesn't use a chair on a daily basis. And so his chair skills weren't great. But we knew that was going to get better. He was going to get more fit. He was going to get stronger upper body. Uh, and he'd be ready to use the chair. Um, but again, I think he had to put his ego in check and say, look, you know, it's different. It's not it's not worse. It's not like the level dropped, especially the elite mm-hmm. level of wheelchair tennis is is off the charts the talent levels as good as as any any of the top able-bodied pros these guys are exceptional uh, and they're contending with a disability but i think for someone like him because i could say most of our top elite wheelchair athletes weren't all tennis players before they got injured some of them were congenital mm-hmm. and they just grew up playing wheelchair tennis not able-bodied tennis so stefan comes back uh and you realize that none of the wheelchair athletes can can overpower him because there's nothing they're going to throw at him that he never that he never seen before right he had dealt with an, an elite level able-bodied ball so the wheelchair ball to him was was very very manageable and i think that was a draw for him going look i can get back into the sport and be good pretty quickly uh, but the chair is a real humbling thing mm-hmm. because you have to be able to hold that racket in your hand and be able to push and maneuver uh, and you have to learn the mobility patterns, which are very challenging, especially if you're able-bodied. Because, you you know, as tennis players, we all want to square up you know, as an able-bodied person. Uh, and that's and that's really what you don't want to do in wheelchair tennis, right? Yeah, you you want to approach 40, the ball 45-degree yeah. angle. That's correct. And also when you recover. So you have to learn that having your back to the net, back to your opponent, is not unnatural. It's It's actually kind of a neutral position. And that's that's a thing you got to learn. And so athletes that have you know gotten injured, there's trauma, and they're going, man, I'm going to go back to tennis, and I'm not going to be as good at it. But then they get into the social aspect, and they realize I'm around my peer group, 
I'm around people who understand me. They understand what I'm going through on a daily basis. Unlike my, my spouse, unlike uh, my siblings, my parents, my grandparents, no one understands what my day's like now, except for my friends in the wheelchair tennis world. Hmm. Right. So they find this circle of people that they can relate to intimately uh, and, and that their own family members can't relate to. And that really it, it doesn't complicate it. It's just it's amazing to me how important having a peer group that understands you is for all of us, right. for this group in particular. So, the, the, you know, yeah. we've been we've been kind of. Uh, kind of hovering around the emotional or, the, you know, the comeback or the salvific nature and just the differences there. Yeah. I do want to have uh, a chance for you to discuss um, some of the more, you might say, the organizational features, you know, because there's people out there who don't know anything yeah. about it. And, and I do want later on, I want to get into some of the practical aspects, like how do they go about doing it? But you mentioned about USTA player development um, and what is done for the professional side of, you know, high performance yeah. wheelchair tennis. Um, maybe go into that, and you mentioned uh, Uniqlo, and then uh, and then maybe the uh, USOPC, where that one letter changed uh, changed yeah. the Paralympic uh, Paralympic movement. Yeah, well, I'll tell you, we came in when I took that position in 2016. You know, the, the national campus in Orlando had not opened till January of 2017, so we were there about three and a half months before it opened. Um, and at that time, you know, we were doing kind of a hard audit on you know what the department looked like before we came in now i you know was a national coach from day one since 1998 but i didn't know all the innards and and budgets and, and how much money we spent and what we were doing uh, for both grassroots and the high performance side so we were able to get in do a hard audit and look at what we wanted to do but we had talked about you know with the former national manager and our coaching staff about trying to get engaged with player development for a very long time and it just didn't it didn't fit because our national manager at that time, Dan James, was he's kind of working remotely. He was working in Minnesota. He was he lived moved in he's in Seattle now, um, and so it just he wasn't in White Plains in the office engaging with all the other departments. And so when we came to the campus, it allowed us to integrate and collaborate in a way we never had. And then the discussion about joining player development began. And once we knew, basically what I did was I just kind of hounded Martin and. Dr. Lovers and the whole crew over there by just sitting over there every day. Like literally, it's one of those stories. I know that sounds ridiculous, but I knew yeah. that if I could get in there and get to know people, they get to know me, they know my intentions are pure, I'm not going to ram player right. development from the side and say, hey, we're wheelchair tennis, you got to take us. Right. I knew that would be a disaster. Well, Martin so, and Paul yeah. are fantastic people. Oh, they're, just, yeah. they're yeah. just phenomenal people. Yeah. I've, I've met so many wonderful people at the USTA. Because remember, yeah. I was on the outside for 20-plus years. And I know everybody's had their gripes at the USTA. I don't see that. I mean, I see, uh, you know, not to get into the politics of the right. USTA, but, but man, there's so many good people working their butts off and so many smart people. Um, and I know there's been some endeavors where people are like, ah, oh, it was a failure. It didn't work. It's like everybody's trying to grow the sport and do it. And, and it's no different for us. And so we knew to have real success that we needed to kind of bifurcate the department and split it mm -hmm. and keep grassroots tennis, grassroots wheelchair tennis under community tennis, which is the largest division in, in the USTA. It needed to stay over there and integrate with, you know, adult leagues, adult tournaments, uh, and that needed to continue and continue with giving grants, sanctioning wheelchair events in the U.S. That's what we do on the community tennis side. But player development it, and again, this is the best way I can define it. And since I've been in there now for, been over there for about three years, officially for one year. 
I said, if you take the Army, the Air Force, the Navy, and the Marine Corps, right, that is the USTA community tennis site. Player development is special operators. And if you look at it that way, that is how we operate. We operate separately from the USTA. We're completely different, you know, 501c3. You know, we're very different, and our, our, our intentions are to develop world champions. And so it's a very elite side, a very elite approach to what we do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I knew we had to be a part of that. If we were, It wasn't like we were looking for legitimacy. I think we had already gained that. You know, the Paralympic Games just isn't – you know, there's always confusion with Special Olympics and Paralympic Games. Mm-hmm. I mean, Special Olympics are cognitive disabilities. Right. That has nothing, that has nothing to do with the Paralympics. Right. Paralympic is all, you know, physical disability. So it wasn't though we needed that legitimacy, but we knew player development's resources were really the key for our athletes. Uh, because a lot of the countries that we compete against, and three that I say right off the top, you know, Great Britain uh, with the LTA, uh, you know, the Dutch in the Netherlands, and Tennis Australia. Those three have knocked it out of the park as far as staff size, budgets, resources, mm-hmm. uh, all of it. It's very professionalized, and we're behind. We've always been behind, and partially because we never had a home base. And now that player development's home base is in Orlando, it's a game changer for us. Now, it's still no. going to take a decade. But the fact of the matter is the foundation is being laid. Um, but I think, you know, with that being said, our relationship, you know, when you mentioned the USOPC, because we look at culture, culture for us, uh, professionalizing the wheelchair tennis culture on the professional side with our elite athletes has been a, a, one of my primary goals. And a dear friend of mine, Alistair McCall, who has worked with a lot of world-class athletes on a lot of university teams all over the world, um, really I brought him in to help us consult uh, on our culture and our professionals. I mean, he was a great outside third party to help us, you know, work through some of the things that we needed to do. And there were some very difficult decisions that had to be made involving our athletes and budgets, but we understood we couldn't move without doing that. Uh, and now we've made the turn. Um, and so cultures played a big part, but the USOPC, formerly known as the USOC, and I'm sure, you know, mo- most of you folks on this uh, you know, podcast listening right now, remember the USOC is the United States Olympic Committee. Um, they added the P about two years ago, if not a little less than that. And it's now the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee. And and I always say it's such a simple thing, right? You added mm-hmm. a letter. Right. All you did was add the P. And you go, well, what did that do by adding the P? Well, right there, I really believe you just bought a generation, if not the previous generation, of Paralympic athletes uh, in support in the USOPC uh, potentially becoming coaches, potentially becoming administrators, right. as opposed to simply moving on. Because the USOC before just didn't put maybe as much energy as we thought they should into the Paralympic side. They had already split the Paralympic side and kind of pushed it to the side and uh, it's kind of a small department. But by adding that P and conjoining the two, not only that, but they also added equal pay for gold medalists silver medalist, bronze medalist at both the Olympic and Paralympic Games. Because before, I think, uh, Rio, you know, uh, an Olympic gold medalist uh, would receive, I think, approximately $40,000 for a gold medal. A Paralympic gold medalist, I think, would get between five and 7500 bucks. Hmm. And you see that disparity, and you're like, well, how are you going to get the loyalty yeah. uh, of the Paralympians if you, number one, don't give them the marketing and the attention uh, and the staff, and then number two, uh, you know, you don't give them the funding uh, and the support when they win medals. And so they run their course and they go on with their lives. 
but now these athletes are looking to stay involved in their sports, mm. their, their specific sports and give back. And I think adding that P was a massive, massive thing. And oh. I think the player development component for us is going to be the same. I think right. our athletes now for the very first time feel like they're being treated like professional athletes. I mean, when I'm training with Dana Matthewson right next to Madison keys day in and day out and CC Bellis, you know, and Bjorn Frantangelo and, and Francis Tiapo when he's in town and, and all of a sudden then they're Carolyn Dolhide and they're just saying hello to Dana and Mackenzie Solden, another one of our athletes who lives in Orlando. So I have two athletes full time there. Uh, it's just, it's, it's a cultural shift. I think, especially for the able-bodied athletes to see how hard these young ladies work. Uh, but in order for that to happen, you need to have a culture and a leadership that says yes. And that's what Martin Blackman and Dr. Paul Lovers and Dr. Larry Lauer, uh, Kent Kinnear, Kathy Rinaldi, Jose Agares, they all say yes. And when you say yes, you know, wonderful things can happen. And that's what's happening for us right now. It's fantastic. Yeah, that's that's really good. I, and I know for the listeners right now, one thing I would like to say then, okay, so because we talk, you're talking about the high performance, the elite. Uh, questions I have is, so let's let's get down to bra- practical brass tacks. How does somebody get involved? What would you say, for example, uh, if people want to be interested in watching, getting involved? Um, you know, and they, or maybe they're in a wheelchair and they say, Hey, how do I, how do I go about doing this? How do I get a chair? How do I, you know, what about things like that? Yeah. So that's the, and that's our grassroots side. And that was a major, major, uh, endeavor of ours was to go through every section and, and really get a, a scope of how many programs there are in the country. And we've done that. We've now mapped that out. We know where all the, the, the local programming is. We have, we have a point person finally in all 17 sections of the USTA. When we came in, only 13 sections had a, a specific wheelchair point person in their sectional office. Four sections didn't even have anybody for wheelchair tennis. And, and again, what a disappointment that is. And so we knew we had to re-engage with the sections. And so now all 17 sections have someone who is connected with us at the national level uh, to assist them in either getting programs started or applying for grants uh, to purchase wheelchairs and so forth. And so there are ways to... Uh, to reach out and find local programming wherever you're at, and we can help with that. You know, I can help with that. Um, but if you're looking to get involved in becoming a coach, potentially, uh, we run uh, coaching development workshops, the USTA coaching development workshops, along with the USPTA, and now futurely, hopefully, the PTR, um, to engage coaches who we've always said are the truly the leadership on the ground. You know, they're the ones leading their community, their tennis communities and their clubs, uh, and they need to be engaged. And I think, you know, coming to us is easy. I mean, again, I know you're going to have my email. If anybody has any questions or are interested, you can come to me or my cohort on the, on the grassroots side, Jason Allen, another Jason. Jason Allen uh, is our manager on the, wheelch- on the community tennis side. He does a fantastic job. And our boss, Joe Wallen, the director of community of adult uh, individual play in wheelchair. Uh, the three of us were there running the whole show. Uh, and so reaching out to us is very easy and we can help with that stuff. But the grant system that we have does help local programs get tennis chairs. And that is very, very important for new folks who've never tried tennis before and they're in chairs. Is I'm not saying don't go out and play in your everyday chair. It's just not entirely safe. Right. You can flip backwards. Right. And so we, we want you to try a tennis chair. And so we can help get those uh, provided for local programs. Um, so we, we really are the resource. If you're looking to get involved, uh, we can direct you to the coaching workshops. We can direct you to local programming. 
Uh, and we can also show you how to sign up for a tournament on Tennis Link. It's all sorts of stuff we can help you with. Okay, good. I'll, I'll put some yeah. of that on my uh, on my uh, website when uh, when right. this is put out. Um, Perfect. I have a. Uh, I ask all my uh, all my guests uh, this question here: um, What would you characterize as the uh, the characteristics of great players that you've seen? Um, you know, as a champion. So, what things that make players champions? Maybe um, give me five. Your top yeah. five. Five. Top five. Wow. Okay. So, I think number one, self belief. I mean, I think that I think everyone can agree that champions in life you have a, a belief system that you know uh that, that even in the thickest of times you can come through and, and and maybe you don't even know where that comes from but that's just something you innately have you know self-belief is, is massive and we could all say roger Federer and rafael nadal and serena williams are supremely confident people who believe in their powers i know pete sampras used to talk about that all the time you know, he just believed he, he just believed if he could manage things well things are going to go well for him and, and what a what a wonderful way to look at life. Honestly. Yeah. So self belief would definitely be one. I think determination is another one. Something where you know in your mind, there is nothing that can prevent you from being a successful person. And if that means making adaptations like the world I'm in, uh, the tennis you know wheelchair tennis side, um, you know being willing to suffer a little bit. You know uh, you know pain uh, comes in many many forms. Uh, but I think if you're willing to embrace it and know what's on the other side of that, um, you can be successful. You know, another one is I think is being process driven. I think successful people tend to be very organized. They have their their short, mid, and long term goals laid out before them. They have wonderful habits. You know, getting up and showing gratitude in the morning and and journaling or meditating and uh, making time for themselves. I think that's very important whether you have a disability or not. I'm just talking, you know, in just humanity. Right, right. You just you have you have to have the ability to, you know, to show gratitude every day. I mean, and again, I with the with the population again that I'm working with, uh, I'm just so I mean, so fortunate. I have three young children, all healthy, uh, and and I, you know, pray that they stay that way. But I understand that there is life on the other side as well. Uh, and I think, and lastly, I would say. Um, I think it's important if you're going to be successful, you have to be an optimistic person and I think a happy person. I think, you know, being morose and being melancholic and, and I'm not saying that's easy, but I think <laughs> if, you're, if your disposition tends to be a little happier and a little more optimistic in life, you tend to do well. And, and, and I will, one more thing I would say is try and like people. And I know that's not always easy, but I think if you like people in general and you like being around people, um, you're going to do well, and and your ability to communicate with people will separate you. And I say, I think for all the young people listening to this, you know, you need to have something that separates you from the pack nowadays. And if you happen to be an optimistic, happy person that gets along well with people, you're going to do well, because that's not everybody, and you will stand out. And some people might think you're strange. <laughs> uh, and I think, and I think, I think if you can get over that, and say, you know what, this is just who I am. Uh, you're going to do well. Uh, but I think determination and self-belief and optimism, uh, those are all massive character traits that I think for successful people, uh, you have to have that. And, and, and maybe top of the list is gratitude. Just being thankful for what you have. Uh, be thankful for your family, for your, for your parents. If they're, if they're good parents, you know, you, you, you thank them. And I don't think we do that enough. We don't tell people mm -hmm. close enough 
to us that we love them. We don't say it to our kids maybe as much as we should. Uh, and we definitely don't say it to our parents as much as we should. Kids listening out there, right. tell your parents <laughs> you love them and thank them because, you know, without, without your parents, uh, that's where it's all is. I mean, we as coaches spend so much time with our players on the road, at tournaments, training. We spend so much time with them. But the reality is parents and siblings, immediate family members spend the most time with them. So be thankful, show some gratitude, um, and, and enjoy them as long as you can because, you know, life's, life's challenging, no doubt about it. Well, Jason, that's some great stuff, man. I, I really appreciate you. We're coming towards the end here. I really appreciate you having on the show. And uh, one of the things I want to just maybe give you one last chance to leave our listeners in terms of maybe some action steps or, I mean, I'm going to put some stuff up on the website, but maybe an event to go to or maybe just one thing you could uh, encourage people to do in terms of an action step regarding wheelchair tennis. Yeah, you know, I think, you know, reaching out to us is a great step, right? And just it just try to get put a list of questions together and think, okay. you know, how can I get involved? How right. can I? It's not about volunteerism. I mean, if you want to go volunteer at a wheelchair tennis tournament just to help out, that's great. I think finding out where the tournaments are, that's, again, where the sections can help. That's where Tennis Link can help. You can look up, I think we have about 80 tournaments in the country all over the place. You can just go attend and go take a look at what it's like. Uh, but if you really are in the tennis industry, my challenge would be to all the tennis pros out there, to all the directors of tennis and all the club owners. This is always a challenge I leave you with is I want you to look at your programming closely. And I want you to think about wheelchair tennis as something that maybe you add to your, your club's programming because it will change the culture of your club. It will change the culture of your community. You'll be the only tennis club in your area that runs a wheelchair tennis program. And I give a plug out for adaptive and military. I think those three, in my opinion, if you were to add anything to your club, don't add another drop in adult clinic. You've got right. enough of those. Right. Don't add another 3.5 ladies doubles even. <laughs> you have enough of that. What you need is a wheelchair clinic one hour a week. What you need is an adaptive clinic one hour a week. And you need a military clinic for your veterans one hour a week. If you do that, you've altered the course of your club culturally and what it does for the overall community I cannot tell you what it, 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 the change is enormous and it's so positive and it's so wonderful. And that's the reputation of your club uh, will be phenomenal. And because you're doing it for the right reasons, you're trying to reach out to all populations that love tennis like we do. And they just need some guidance. They need some help and they need a place to go and play. Right. And you need to check on the accessibility of your club for you club owners and head pros and directors. You need to take a look at your front door. Can someone in a chair get in? Are the bathrooms up to code? Is, are the players able to get to the courts? And if they are, can they get through the gates? Are there steps leading to the courts? These are things that also the USTA has grants for, to, for facility upgrades to help with these things. So there's no excuse to say, well, we just, we just can't do it. Right. As, but that, I don't, you just don't want to hear that. It's like it's just you choose not to. Right. In reality, there's a population out there that flies under the radar. That really is starving for, um, you know, programming and, and coaching and help. And they want to love tennis like, you know, you and I, Coach. We love it. This is yeah. what we do. Well, that's, we want them to love it like we do. That's really good so. practical advice. So th thanks for that. Well, yeah. you've been listening to uh, Coach Steve Clark, Ph.D. show with Jason Harnett and uh, of the USTA. He runs the wheelchair program. And uh, be sure to like, share this, and all my podcasts, blogs, um, and uh, visit my website at CoachSteveClarkPhD.com. 
Uh, there you'll find uh, pages for my blogs and podcasts, resources, video discussion, and more. I'd like to special thank uh, Collins Company uh, for their court equipment and aero concrete and asphalt specialties. Um, also, I'd like to welcome your comments and questions. And you can reach me at steve at coachsteveclarkphd.com. And if you've got questions for me, I can forward over to Jason, but I'll also get uh, his info out on the, uh, on the website there. Um, let me leave you with uh, one of my... Uh, one of my uh, mottos, and uh, I, I leave different ones at the end each time. This one is, champions are not division dependent. As a college coach for many years, people would say, hey, you D1, D2, D3. It doesn't matter. The characteristics of a champion are not division dependent, and that is exactly the case for today. Uh, champions, whether you're able-bodied, disabled, adaptive, etc., you're still a champion, and it takes an immense amount of grit and determination and, and uh, stickity tuitiveness uh, to do that. So um, uh, champions are not division-dependent. And as I say at the end of every show with the Brian Brothers music coming up, I remind you just to let it rip. <laughs>